Thank you, Douglas. Good, please be seated. Well, as you can see, this is a part two. And there was a tremendous response to last Sunday's start on prosperity in the kingdom of God. And when I really started to get into this, I realized it's a much bigger topic than I had anticipated. In fact, as I was putting this together, I put together what I considered really about the bare minimum of what I wanted to cover. And even with that, I had to take a chainsaw to my notes to tailor it down to something that would fit within a Sunday. As a result, instead of this being the part two and final part, this is the part two of three on this series on prosperity in the kingdom of God. And before I go further, I want to give you a quick review of where we were last week. Now, if you weren't with us last week, you probably need more than a quick review. So you can listen online, you can go watch it on YouTube, or you can listen on our website. But these teachings on prosperity are really a part of a larger series that we're going to be doing over the next six months, which is life in the kingdom of God, and how life in God's kingdom is different than life the way we have been led to believe it is. And so much different and so much better. You know, the standards that we have picked up over the course of our lives, we, and you know, you just pick these up as you go along. It's not as though you took a course in high school, you know, Worldview 101, and you figured out what your, your thoughts were about life. No, this is something that you pick up throughout life. And we bring up, we pick up certain thoughts and beliefs. And then these thoughts and beliefs become how we live our life. So what we want to do is we want to see what God has to say about these circumstances and situations because I guarantee you that God has bigger plans for your life than you could ever conceive of on your own. You know, Jesus Christ said, among many other things, that I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's a statement. It's a promise. It's a hope that we have as Christians. And yet so few Christians really live like this. But God wants it for every part of your life. And he sets this out very clearly in his word. We're going to look at just one clear promise from 3 John chapter 1, verse 2. This outlines two things where the world and even Christians have taught something very different than what God states. Here it says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper. And that word prosper could be succeed. So that you may succeed and be in good health just as your soul prospers. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to succeed in life. And that certainly is going to include the financial area of life. Not all Christians believe this. There are Christians who don't recognize that God wants health for them. We just have to remember that when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't go around making people sick. Oh, good, you came to hear the word. Have leprosy so that you're more humble. No, that's not what Jesus did. It's not God's will for people to be sick. It's not God's will for people to be in chronic need in their lives. So this is a promise. Okay, and it's a great promise. People take this verse and they put it on their wall. They write it on notes. It's a great promise. How do you receive it? Every promise that you encounter in God's word is going to come with a set of instructions. 
And if we follow the instructions, then we receive the promise. So what are the instructions for succeeding? What are the instructions that God has so that he can prosper you? Now, you don't need God to prosper you. You can try and go about this on your own and see where it takes you. But it's always much better to include God than to try to go off without him. So, when it comes to prosperity, there are three different sets of instructions that God has in his word. And they basically boil down to work heartily. It says, and that's work heartily as unto the Lord. You work as though Jesus were signing your paycheck, okay? That's what that means. Spend or steward wisely. A lot of wisdom in God's word about that. And then the third point is to give generously. And that's the point that we've been covering in these last two teachings. And I want to look at Proverbs because Proverbs chapter 3 summarizes God's wisdom about prosperity. Now, Proverbs has a lot of wisdom about everyday life. The book of Proverbs was written for young people so that they would know as they embarked on life God's wisdom for everyday practical affairs. The book of Proverbs is probably the most practical book in the Bible. Certainly the most practical book in the Old Testament. After that would be probably the book of James, which I would consider the most practical book in the New Testament. But Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This is where God always starts, your relationship to him. He always starts you and him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. My own understanding is like leaning on a blade of grass. It's not going to support me very well. And then it says in verse 6, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. God wants your paths to be straight. How many of you have heard that God works in mysterious ways? He does not, okay? He does not say, if God wanted to work in mysterious ways, what he would say here... He will put you in a maze with the lights out. You are not a lab rat running through life. You are a son or daughter of God, and God will make your path straight so that you can walk with him and see your life blessed. Now, we drop down to verse 9 in this same chapter, and we get to giving and receiving. Which, by the way, when God speaks of giving, he always also speaks of being blessed and receiving. Most people, most organizations talk about giving, and that's what they talk about. They talk about giving, and they talk about your obligation. God talks about giving and receiving, and rather than talk about your obligation, he talks about your partnership with him and your blessings. God has a very different approach to things. But anyway, in verse 9 it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Interesting verse, honoring God. What God views giving as is honoring him. When we received an offering, God views that as one of the ways that we honor him. And we honor him with our wealth, which would be referring to what we already have, our belongings, and with the first fruits of all our produce. And this is something that's interesting about first fruits. You cannot give God of your first fruits unless you trust him. See, many people, they're happy to give God their leftovers. After I've spent everything I need to spend, I think I've got all my bills covered, I've got this, I've got that. Oh, look, I've got 50 bucks left over. I'm going to give that to God. 
that's not giving of our first fruits. That's giving of our leftovers. God will still bless you. But he can bless you so much more if you trust him so much more. See, because even the person who gives his leftovers is still trusting God to a degree because they're honoring him like that. But how much more if we do it in the order that he says, in his first fruits? And if you do this, if you honor God, then verse 10 says, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I like that. I, I enjoy wine. See, again, this is different than the world. This is giving to receive. Remember I said last week, God's kingdom is different than this world. In God's kingdom, you humble yourself to be exalted. In God's kingdom, you serve if you want to lead. And in God's kingdom, you give to allow him to bless you back. All these different things and many more are counter to what we've grown up with. But they have God behind them. So we first trust God. That's what verse 5 was. First you trust God, then you honor him. That's the order. And we do this with our first fruits. We do it to honor God and to recognize that he is really the source of everything in our lives. Take a look at 1 Chronicles 29. This is David speaking, King David. And he had wanted to build a temple for God. God did not have a temple. The Ark of the Covenant was in a tent. David wanted to build the, God, the everlasting God a temple. But God told him, that's not for you, that will be for your son. So what David did instead was he inspired the people to give to God so that when his son came along, he could build that temple. And here's what David is saying. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? So how did David offer? Willingly. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given to you. You know, I think of when my kids were little. They wanted to buy mom a Mother's Day gift, so I gave them some money so that they could buy mom a Mother's Day gift. This is what God does still with us, okay? He blesses us abundantly so that we can honor him back. And we honor God, and we give willingly to carry on his ministry and to bless others. Now, Last week, we looked at Abraham. Abraham, one of the stellar figures in God's word, and he is called, among other things in the Bible, he is called a man of faith. He is called the father of all those who believe. Now, how many of you here believe? Believe in God and believe in his son? Okay, guess who's your dad? Abraham. He is your father. And when it says he's your father, it means he's the standard, the benchmark of all those who will come after and learn God's ways and learn to believe what he has to say. So Abraham set the standard for a lot of things in the Bible. And when you read about Abraham's life, so much in his life was a foretaste of what the Christ would do. But one of the things that Abraham set the standard for was giving. And the standard that he set was carried throughout the word of God. The standard was later called the tithe, and it is setting aside one-tenth of your income as holy or dedicated to God. That's what it means to say holy. Now, as we saw last week, the tithe came with a whole set of really tremendous promises. You can read about them in Malachi chapter 3. Here's the summary. Big blessings and God restrains the adversary from interfering with your life. So if that sounds good to you, then you can read Malachi chapter 3. You can look at what we went into last week. 
This morning, however, we are going to move into the New Testament. Now, when I speak of the New Testament and of New Testament giving, I am talking about after the resurrection, okay? I know that in your Bibles, the New Testament starts with the Gospel of Matthew, okay? But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John relate what Jesus did before he paid the ransom and got our redemption. So when you talk about the New Testament, if you're talking about the new covenant that we enjoy, that new covenant didn't occur until the resurrection followed by the day of Pentecost. So I'm going to look at giving under the new covenant, which is what you and I live in today. Now, when Abraham first honored God with a tenth of the spoils of the battle, he did so by faith, and he did so voluntarily. He did so of his own free will. Now, when the Bible says to act on faith, to live by faith, that's a very common Christian term. To live by faith in the Bible means to live according to something that God has said. Okay, you can't make up faith. God says something. If you choose to live according to it, that is living by faith. How do you respond to what God says? Look at Romans 10, 17. Here's how we get faith. So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing what? The word of God. When you hear the word of God, like when we read God's word, like we're doing this morning, when you hear the word of God, you have an opportunity. You can respond to it. And when you respond to it positively, that is called faith. And the word faith simply means to trust, to trust to the point of acting on something. So for you to have faith, God has to show you something, right? He has to show you something. God has two ways of showing people things that they can then believe. The first, of course, is the Bible. This is God's revelation to man. This is the most obvious way that you can have faith. However, Abraham is the father of all those who believe. He is a man of faith, but the Bible did not exist during Abraham's time. There was no Bible. Abraham lived about 400 years before any of the Bible was written. How could Abraham then be a man of faith? Well, there's a second way that God can communicate his will, and that is to give his instructions and his word directly to people. He can speak to anyone upon whom he has placed his spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, this was very rare. The only people who had God's spirit upon them in the Old Testament were the prophets and those others who might not be referred to as prophets but were otherwise anointed by God. That was the Old Covenant. Today, each and every one of us has the spirit of God. God can talk to every single Christian man and woman. So not only does he still have the written word to communicate to us, he can talk to you directly and give you instructions about your life. So, now, when you think about Abraham again, what Abraham did after that battle was he gave a tenth to God. What Abraham did, he did by faith and by free will. That was Abraham. This was later incorporated into the law of Moses, and what Abraham did by the freedom of his will became an obligation to the Jews. An obligation with lots of blessings, but still an obligation that was part of their relationship and covenant with God. That all changed with Jesus Christ. That all changed with Christ. We honor God freely out of our love and thanksgiving, not out of a sense of obligation. 
The obligations of the law were done away with in Christ. The blessings of God's word and God's law still exist, but the obligation has been replaced with a relationship. The relationship you have to God now is that of a son or a daughter. That's different than in the Old Testament where their relationship was that of a servant. Now, being a servant of God is far better than being away from God. But being a son or daughter of God is far better than being his servant. And that's where we are. So Abraham is called the man of faith, the father of all those who believe, which includes and moves up to our day and time. In the New Covenant, faith is still the benchmark of how we respond to God. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 7. It says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Now when it says we walk by faith, it means faith in God. Because everybody has faith. Faith is universal. Faith is human. But not all faith is in God. So you have to understand the context here. For we walk by faith in God, not by sight, not by what we see, not by the wisdom we have picked up along the way, but by what God has said. Now, here's a question that I think is pretty easy for most Christians to answer. Do you believe that God will move heaven and earth to fulfill his promises in your life? Now, most Christians are going to say yes to that. Are we willing to make adjustments to our life, though, in light of those promises? That's what Abraham did. Over and over, he made adjustments to his life, starting with the first thing we read about him. God told Abraham, to, he was a wealthy man where he was in Ur of the Chaldees, okay, get up, take your family, take all your belongings, and go to a place I will show you. He didn't give him an address. He didn't tell him what town he was going to. He said, get up and start moving. You know what we would want? We would demand information. We would demand, okay, God, all right, no, I know you're God, but where am I going to go? What's going to happen next? What's going to become of me and my family? How is this all going to work out? No, God didn't tell him that. God said, get up and move. And you know what he did? He moved. I was at uh, the fellowship at Primo a couple of weeks ago, and Garrett made an interesting statement in a sports analogy. He said that, you know, when people look at sports teams, everybody wants to be the beast, that guy. Everybody wants to be that guy. But so few are willing to do what the beast does to become the beast. I want to live like Abraham. Am I willing to take God at his word, even when it doesn't satisfy my need for understanding? That was Abraham. I want to be like Abraham. Abraham made adjustments. If, you don't, if you're not willing to make an adjustment in your life according to God's word, you're not, you don't believe. That's what it says in James. This is an interesting statement here. Because in James 2.14 it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now, this is a rhetorical question. The obvious answer in Greek is, no, it can't. Christians are great. We are great at claiming to have faith. But what, you know what that really means in most cases? When we claim, oh, I have faith. I believe God. What that really means is we acknowledge that the Bible is true. Okay? Acknowledging that the Bible is true is a good first step. 
But acknowledging that the Bible is true by itself is not faith. Faith is when you are willing to carry out what the Bible says. Look what it says in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I don't want to claim to have faith. I want to have faith. I want to do what he says. And faith involves risk. And it involves a willingness to to adjust our lives and our priorities to match God's. You know, I talk to people, they want to have great marriages, but they're not willing to adjust their lives to have a great marriage. God has wisdom about marriage. If you do it, you'll have a great one. If you don't, you can pray till you're blue in the face. I want to encourage you to take God up on his word. Not simply in finances, which is our topic this Sunday, but anywhere in life. Include God in your life. Because if we don't include God, if we don't consciously decide to include him, we are limiting what God can do in our lives. We are not limiting how much God loves us. We are limiting how much God can be involved. Take a look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 41. This is about the children of Israel. They did this regularly. And before we laugh at them, Christians do it just as regularly. It says, yea, they turn back to their own ways, their own wisdom. They turn back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Do you want to limit God in your life? I don't want to limit God in my life. I want God to be able to do in my life everything that he has planned. And the only thing that keeps God from doing everything he has planned in your life is you. You're the, you're the only one who determines that by how much you choose to include him. I know of people, and I've counseled with them over the years, they pray regularly and faithfully for prosperity. But what they want is for God to do something on their problem without them making any adjustments. That's what they want. We adjust ourselves to God, not the other way around. And then we receive the blessings. And, you know, this is just, sometimes, you know, this might be reproving for some people, it might be encouraging for others, it might be new info for people. But it's the information in God's Word that is going to help you live the promises that you read about. It doesn't take much reading to understand that God has promised great things. I want each of you to see that in your lives. And there are two ways that people can live their lives. They can live them by faith or they can live them by sight. You can live by faith, or you can live, another way to say would be to live by reason, by the wisdom that you've sorted out. And when it comes to finances, wisdom asks, the wisdom of this world, reason, asks questions. Well, what can I afford? What do I feel like giving? What do I want to do? These are the kinds of questions that reason asks. Faith only asks one question. And it doesn't matter what the, what the situation is, what the topic is, faith only asks one question. And that one question is, what does God have to say about this? That's the question of faith. Living by faith means you follow what God has said in his word. Now, in the Old Testament, that was limited only to the scriptures. And the scriptures are always our starting point. The scriptures are always our starting point. But today, because each of you has the Spirit of God living within you, you can talk to God and listen to him when he talks back. 
God wants to talk to you. If you will get quiet and speak with him, you will hear his voice. He wants to talk to you. So living by faith today, as opposed living by faith under the law of Moses, started and ended with the scriptures. Living by faith today starts with the scriptures and adds to that anything that God might tell you specific to your situation. So, when you read something in the scriptures, that can be applied by anybody. Jillian can apply it, Stephen can apply it, John can apply it, doesn't matter. If it's written in the scriptures, anybody can apply it. When it's given directly to you in a specific circumstance, that is only for you to apply. You don't then tell everybody else, this is what they ought to do. God told me X, so now, Ryan, you got to do X. No, Bob's got to do X. Ryan can do Y, which God tells him. So I want to give you an example of something that Jesus told a young man that is way beyond and way outside of the requirements of the law which this man lived under. And we want to see, how is this man going to respond? Is he going to respond with faith, with reason, or with fear? So let's look at this. This is in Mark 10. This record is repeated three times in the Gospels. So it was obviously an important point. It says, And as he was set, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's an interest. That's a good question, right? You might have had that question at one point in your life. And here's Jesus in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, how many of you think Jesus is good? <laughs> well, of course we think Jesus is good. Well, Jesus isn't saying that he's bad. Jesus is saying that all goodness comes from God. He is the standard. Jesus, I, your good teacher, I'm not the standard for good. God is the standard for good. That's what he means by this. So Jesus then answers him. The man asked the question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? This was the answer in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Next verse. Now, before I go to this next verse, that was the answer in the Old Covenant. You know what the answer is today? Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Isn't it a lot easier today? But this is then, so that's what we're reading about. But I just wanted to make sure that you don't go out and say, oh, this is what I have to do to get eternal life. That's what they had to do to get eternal life. You have, in between this statement that Jesus is making, you have the cross that changed things. Okay, now let's read verse 20. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these have I kept from my youth. Now you might look at that and say, Yeah, right. Like if I said that, (laughs) yeah, yeah, right, Bob. But that's not how Jesus treats this man. Here's the interesting point. This man was a good and righteous and just man according to the law. Okay? And Jesus treats him that way. And Jesus looking at him loved him. He didn't like say, yeah, right. He loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
Nothing in the Old Testament says anything about selling all that you have and giving it all away. There's not a single verse about that in the Old Testament. This was revelation from Jesus Christ to this one individual. It's the only time he ever said anything like this. Who knows what this man missed out because he didn't respond in faith? Jesus was offering this guy a spot with him in the twelve. You can come and you can follow me. You can be with me. And he turned it down. Now, this record of what Jesus said to this man cannot be applied by anybody other than the man to whom Jesus said it. It's the only person it applies to. What applies to you? You have the written word of God, and you have a father who will talk to you. Seek God. And God may show you something about your life that is just as outlandish to you as it did to, as this seemed to this young ruler. And when God at times tells us something that goes beyond our comprehension, something that goes beyond our comfort zone, often what God is doing is he is helping you and challenging you to trust him more. And that's what he's doing. So I've asked Garrett to come up and share a testimony that he told me a couple of weeks ago when we had breakfast together that just outlines how God will work with you individually so that you can respond in faith to him. So Garrett. Hey, good morning, guys. So uh, Danny and I, we've always been super faithful in giving. We've always given 10% uh, of anything that comes into uh, our household regarding our finances. And um, that's just been like a standard for us. Um, But the end of April, uh, I was praying and God put it on my heart. And he said, over the next 60 days, I want you to give double of everything that you've been giving. So that would mean 20%. And um, for us, uh, with my line of work, the summer months are, are rather slow, and so it's not like, and let me just tell you, we're not rich or anything like that. Um, so it, it was definitely a big stretch for us, but I believe that's, that's exactly what God was telling me to do. He wanted us to give 20%, so uh, what I do is I go and I talk with Danny about it, and I say, I believe this is what God's telling me, that this is what we should do over the next 60 days. And so um, I, I let her pray on that because I knew that God was also going to reveal that to her because we are one, and I'm not about to make uh, decisions on my own regarding our finances. So uh, God revealed that to her, that um, it was something that we should move forward with, although that doesn't mean that it was comfortable. So uh, we did that, and we had, uh, we had started off uh, giving the 20%, and within two weeks uh, of, of us starting to give the 20%, uh, we get some random check in the mail from... Uh, it was like a medical bill, I guess, that we had overpaid or something like that. Just really random. But we get this check in, in the mail that was for the exact amount that we had been paying uh, or been giving double for the, the previous uh, two weeks. So uh, it was God's little way of just saying, okay, hey, I'm, I'm here. I, I, I got you. It's okay. Uh, because, again, every week it was still uncomfortable. It was not what we were used to. Um, and we did have to make some adjustments regarding our finances on other ends. And uh, within uh, a couple weeks after that, I had someone uh, come to me and say that God had spoken to me and said, I, I, I'm to give you $1,000, uh, so come to my house and, and come pick it up. And 
So we did that. And again, that was another way of God saying, I got you, and I will take care of your financial situation. Um, over the past 60, uh, 60 days, uh, in regards to work, God has blessed us in absolute abundance. Um, my performance, the work performance, uh, for me has far exceeded uh, my peers, and it's not because I've been doing anything different. And with uh, such high performance comes bonuses and all these other financial blessings that we have been the recipient of. And in, in fact, it was just the performance in work has just been so great the past couple of months. Uh, the owners of the company called me into their office and they said, what are you doing differently? Like, wh- what is going on? Because we, we need you to share this with everybody. And I said, do you really want to know what's going on? And they said, yeah, we really want to know what's going on. And these guys are not believers. Uh, and so I, I was in their office, so I shut the door and I said, well, here, let me tell you what's going on. And I said, two weeks ago, or, you know, two months ago, you know, I've been giving. So I basically gave the, the whole testimony and hearing God's voice. And, and these guys were just floored and so excited uh, to hear that and, and really blessed. And so um, with that, um, you know, the 60 days has, has ended and still the abundance continues to, to flow in. And um, it's... It's one of those things that we, we, didn't, I, we didn't want to be religious with the 20%, and I didn't want to see that as like a financial investment, you know. So I listened to God on the 60 days, and, and, and that's, we're back to giving 10% <clears throat> until God reveals something else to us um, or how he would have us proceed. But my encouragement to, to you guys is that although things, a lot of times we wait for things to make sense, and Bob alluded to this earlier, before we actually move forward with God, but I truly believe that you know, and we see in Scripture all the time that uh, if you really want to see the way that God is going to work and desires to work through you, we have to step out on things that just straight up do not make sense uh, in the five census realm. But, um, yeah, I encourage you to just, to just give, man, to just give and, and see what God wants to do with that. Amen? Good. Thank you, Garrett. That's, that's giving in the New Testament, starting with the basis of what's in the Scripture. The tithe is in the Scripture. Anybody can read and understand that. But then allow God to talk with you. And The thing that intrigued me about that testimony is, is it very clearly outlined how God would work. First, Garrett started to do it. Now, he said he had to make adjustments in his other spending. So the first thing that God does is randomly replace everything that he gave to God. And then he continues to do it. So that builds faith. And then finally, God was able to bless him in the ways that he wanted to. And that's what God wants to do for your life. But if you're going to wait until you understand how God's going to do that. Can you imagine if Garrett said, okay, God, well, can you spell out to me exactly how this is going to work? You know, this is what we do with reason. We demand of God an explanation when what he asks of us is faith. So before we look at some New Testament examples of giving and receiving, I want to ask a question, and then I'm going to answer it for you. And that is, does a Christian have to tithe? No. That obligation ended with the Old Covenant. Living in the age of grace, all giving is free will giving. Just like the tithe started as free will giving. We saw that last week with Abraham. Abraham was before the law. He wasn't following the law. He was following God's word. 
A Christian doesn't have to tithe. And you want to know what else? A Christian doesn't have to pray or read their Bibles or come to fellowship. We don't have to do any of these things. We do them because of our relationship with God. That's what we're building on. Now, I want to look at the first two records of New Testament giving. And something I want, I'll talk about this more later. The word tithe is never used in the New Testament. Again, New Testament meaning resurrection after, okay? That's New Testament in terms of New Covenant. Maybe I should call it that, because when I say New Testament, you're thinking of a portion of your Bible. If I say New Covenant, I think most of you recognize I'm talking about what Jesus Christ established for us. Okay, so I'll try to amend my comments on that. But these first two records, very early in the Christian church, very early in the Christian church, and here's what happened when Christianity started on Pentecost. Thousands upon thousands of people responded, many of whom did not live in Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem for the big feast. And they came there for the feast. It was a pilgrimage. They would come and then they would go. Well, they came and stayed because they just experienced God in a way, I want more of this. I want more of what just happened on Pentecost. I want more about this Jesus guy. I want to hear what the apostles have to say. So they didn't move. They just stayed there. And so we now have this multitude of people who are staying in Jerusalem without jobs or housing. So what's God going to do about this? Let's see. In verse 42, this is, this is right after Pentecost, on, on the day of Pentecost. And they, the people who responded, who, now, who are now Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was their initial response at Pentecost. Now, when it says they sold their possessions and such, it's their extras. I mean, it makes no sense for me to sell my car that now I can't get anywhere and give you the money so now you can... That's not how God operates. We'll see this in this next record. This is a few years... It's probably not a few years later. It's several months later at the least. And the Christians are beginning to be noticed. They're being noticed by the same people that crucified Jesus. And they don't like this any better than they like Christ. So they started persecuting the church. And what they did is they responded in prayer. Let's read about this in Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the apostles and others, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The high priest said, keep your mouth shut. What they did was continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And it says here, they were all filled with the Spirit. And I want to talk about that for a minute, just so you understand. It's, the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, right? That's when they spoke in tongues. 
So what happens? Does that mean they got unfilled, they got emptied, and now they're getting refilled? No, that's not what it's talking about here. When, it, when you see it speaking about being filled with the Spirit, in the language of the New Testament, that is referring to a real walking in power and operation of the Spirit that's within them. That's what it's referring to. Peter didn't lose the Spirit and then got it back again. He's just, re they're really living it now. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This isn't communism, by the way. Communism is when the government tells you you have it in common. Christianity is when you make a decision on your own that you don't need this and you let somebody else use it. It's a big difference. Okay, side note. Where am I here? Verse, let's go to verse 33. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Tens of thousands of new Christians in Jerusalem, many of whom weren't from Jerusalem, and how many needy people did they have? None. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Again, you notice it's lands and houses, plural. What they didn't need, their excess is what they would get rid of. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Notice this level of giving, of being of one heart and one soul, followed their prayer and being filled with the Spirit. That's what it followed. This was a unique time in the church, by the way. This isn't, this isn't, these are not instructions for how the church operates day by day. This was a unique time in the church, and it was to care for those who had moved to Jerusalem suddenly until they could get integrated within Jerusalem, now that this is where they decided to live and stay. Even though they all gave abundantly and generously, everyone was blessed. Now, both of these records, these first two records about giving in the New Testament, both of them involved faith in God's individual direction. Because, again, there's nothing in the Old Testament that these new Christians could say, oh, Leviticus 12, this is what we should do. There was nothing like that. This was God working within the people in the church to meet a particular need. Now what we're going to do is we're going to jump 20 years in the future. The church has been around for 20 plus years and Paul has been starting, establishing churches throughout the Mediterranean area. And during this time, there was a famine in the Roman Empire. They were, famines were actually pretty common in the ancient world. And there was a famine that was affecting Israel, the area of Israel, and therefore affecting the Christian population of Israel. And what God directed was for Paul to go to the Christians in Greece and make this need known to them. This is not the first time that this happened. It also happened uh, earlier in the book of Acts. And here's in 2 Corinthians an explanation of what God encouraged them to do and how God's view of it was. In verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 8, it says, And we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. God calls this giving 
an act of grace. That's how God views it. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love also is general. Genuine, excuse me. The giving was always left up to the individual. That's how God always leaves it up to us. We walk with him, he directs our steps. But here's what God says is going to occur. It's in the next chapter. You should read these two chapters. I don't have the time to go through all of them today. This is part of the chainsaw that I said earlier. I couldn't go through the whole two chapters, but they're great. I want to go to the punchline here in verse 6 of chapter 9. It says, the point is this. After talking about giving and blessing and grace, here's the point. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's New Testament giving. That's how it operates. We are in a relationship to God. It is not demanded as an obligation, as it was under the law. It is inspired to sons and daughters. And when we decide, when we give with a cheerful heart, when we go to God and allow him to direct our steps, here's what God does. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that pretty well covers it, you may abound in every good work, As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is this gift? The gift is the grace we get to participate with God. That's what it's talking about. And you know, amounts are not of interest to God. There's a record in the Gospels where Jesus commends a woman who threw in two mites into the temple treasury. Two mites isn't going to do squat for maintaining the temple. And you know what Jesus said to her? Or about her? He wasn't talking to her. He said she has given more than everybody else. Because she, out of her heart, gave. See, it's not the amount that matters to God. It's the heart. You know, if, if God tells you that you should give 20% and you make $10 a week, that's $2, Right? You might say, well, that's not much, but it's responding to God, because God doesn't, God cares about faith. God doesn't keep ledgers. I want to look at Philippians. Philippians is an interesting uh, situation. This is the book of Philippians. Philippi, Philippi was the first church started in what you and I would call Europe. Church started in Israel in the Middle East. It moved up into what we would call Asia Minor or Turkey. And this is the first time 20 years or so later, that the word of God is spoken in Europe, in what we would call Europe. And it was in Macedonia, which is northern Greece, is the first place Paul went. And these Philippian Christians were just wonderful, faithful believers. Look at verse 10. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. They were concerned about Paul as he traveled around starting other churches. He wasn't ministering to them anymore. 
but they were concerned that the church spread throughout the world. He said, now Paul goes, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is the secret to being able to face abundance and need? What is the secret that Paul knew? It's in the next verse. It's in the next verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret. It doesn't matter what your circumstances look like. God can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, northern Greece, and went south, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. You know why? Because Paul didn't demand that people give. He allowed people to partner with him, to partner with the church, to partner with the ministry of God's word. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. That's our heart in the church. We don't seek the gift. God promises to take care of us. We want to see you receive the blessings that God has in store. It always pains me when I see believers in chronic need, when it is so easy for people to get out of that if they would simply apply what the scriptures say. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received of Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to God. This doesn't mean they sent Paul perfume. It's, he's, using, he's showing that their giving to him was a great sacrifice before and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now imagine if I made the promise to you, Steve, I'm going to supply all of your needs according to Bob's riches and goodness. Well, Steve's going to go, well, that's nice, Bob. Nice of you. Not a whole lot coming out of that, but nice. God has made a promise that he will supply every need according to his riches in glory in Christ. God is well able to take care of your needs. Don't allow your perception of your circumstances to limit what God can do in you. God is way beyond your circumstances. We make our needs too big and our God too small. We we look at it as though, well, if I have this medium-sized problem, I'm sure God can take care of that. But, you know, if it's a mountain, we freak out. God's a mountain mover. Now, these records show a degree of partnering with God that is far beyond anything you would see in the Old Testament. Far beyond it. The New Testament always goes beyond the Old Testament. It's always an upgrade. Things get better and better. And as I said before, it is interesting that the tithe is not mentioned in the New Covenant. The word tithe or tenth does not appear in New Covenant writings. 
everything that is mentioned in New Covenant writings far exceeds it. Because it's all based on relationship, not obligation. Big difference. You know, for myself, we're similar to, to Garrett. We tithe, and then if God directs us to do otherwise, we do otherwise. It doesn't have to make sense to me, because I know God makes sense to me. The emphasis with God to the new covenant people, us, is never obligation. I don't want to have a relationship with my two daughters that is based on obligation. Those of us who have children, is that what you want your relationship to be? Obligation? No. We want a relationship that is based on love. The promises in God's word are always in force. There's more available to us now as children than there was to the Jews as servants. The emphasis is on choosing, on free will, and on including God. That's my encouragement to you. I want to encourage you to include God in your finances. Go to him, ask him what he wants you to do. How does he want you to approach this? And I've had people do this who had tens of thousands of dollars in debt. They couldn't see any way out of it. Go to God, see what he says, follow his wisdom, and then in fairly short order, they're out of their debt. You can't explain it if you don't have God. Don't be afraid to follow God's wisdom in your life. All too often, what we go with is what is comfortable, familiar, and reasonable. That's how, that's how we live our lives. Comfortable, familiar, and reasonable. God calls you to much more. A life of faith is seldom comfortable, familiar, or reasonable. But I'll tell you what it is. It is exciting. It is exciting. Allow God to be a part of your life here. Allow him. We're going to be looking at allowing God to be parts of your marriages, your relationships, your leadership and service. Allow God to be a part of your life based on his wisdom. I want to close with 2 Corinthians 1.20. It says, For no matter how many promises God has made, Lots. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Through Christ, we say our amen. And we're going to pray together. Why don't you all stand? We'll pray. We'll stand and pray. And then we're going to sing the song, Yes and Amen. And we're going to sing it with Jessica again. I thought that was nice. I had a copy of Jessica singing this song, so we'll sing that. By the way, newsflash, baby looks great. Saw it this week, cute. So, but let's pray. Father God, thank you in the name of Jesus Christ for your love for us. Thank you, God, for abundantly supplying every need that we have in every category of life. And Father, I ask you that each of us here today can look to you and see your will for our lives. What you have stated in your scriptures, what you will speak to our hearts, God. And I ask you to give us the courage to follow your wisdom. And I thank you for the blessings we're all going to look forward to receiving. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Why don't we start that, Carolyn? 